Hello and welcome to another episode of the 905er podcast and the Thursday 905 roundup where we look at stories that are happening in our region which you know, some will have received attention elsewhere and some maybe haven't received enough attention. Um, and to kick us off, Joel, um, there's well something that, that certainly has had some attention in, in the media um, and it's uh, relating to Hamilton. Well, yeah, this weekend, uh, if you're a Hamiltonian resident, you no doubt heard about the, the, uh, I'll, I'll be played about the, the kerfuffle in JC Beamer Park, uh, on the weekend where, uh, prote- protesters and police clashed over, uh, the homeless that, that were living in the park. Now, the details are coming out and we're getting kind of a back and forth. Uh, dial, uh, uh, narrative happening here, so I don't want to get too much in the details because it, it this thing has escalated into the to the SIU uh, level. But essentially, from what I what we know is, um, there's a, a homeless encampment in JC Beamer Park, uh, the Hamilton Encampment Support Network, uh, which is a group uh, for that works with people uh, uh, homeless and who are in, in tents. Uh, to they were try, trying to show their support because the the police were. Uh, looking, investigating into the park, and uh, it, things escalated to the point where violence was was conducted. Uh, let's say uh, in the park, uh, and I'm being played about that. We had the police ended up coming in, escalating to to violence. So they broke up the the protest. Uh, people were are reporting to be have been hurt, bruised, punched. Using one person is accusing uh, an officer of putting their knee on their neck to the point where they couldn't breathe. Uh, popular uh, community organizer uh, Sarah Drama were, was arrested, uh, on a, surprisingly, uh, by the police. And then uh, things escalated uh, down to a uh, police station where protesters moved to protest the police uh, action there, to which the things escalated there. Three people were arrested uh, there as well. And but later, uh, later released. And the again, I'm not going to get into the who, who's right and who's wrong bit here because this thing has been escalated up to the SIU level. Uh, so I'm, I'm trusting that the process will unveil exactly what happened in a timeline of events and that and and those things. So that's not what I want to get into. My interest in this whole story is the fact that there is a homeless encampment in J.C. Beamer Park. And just what what's the necessity, you know, the, the fact that it's there, and that you know everybody says it's, it's treated as a, as more of a nuisance than this is a, a a symptom of a much larger issue, and that issue is the fact that housing is becoming wildly unaffordable uh, to the the lower income rung of, of society. These people are are living in the, in the in the encampment not because oh it's a it's a lovely weekend away and a, a fun excursion to do it's they they literally have nowhere else to go and this is the only place that they can they can go the the shelter system isn't equipped to handle them uh, there's clearly not enough community funded social housing to house them safely and and appropriately and this is what they're left to and and. In, the response is okay. We'll send in, in the cops to break it up, which is, I'm going to say, it's it's a wild overuse of resources, uh, and it's a, if, at best it's a band aid uh, solution to a 
bigger, deeper problem in Hamilton, and I'm going to argue the 905 at large. Well, yeah, we saw we saw earlier this year in Toronto uh, uh, similar uh, cl- police clearing events uh, becoming violent, uh, uh, major arrests, uh, and I mean, I guess it comes down to that thing of of there are people who, regardless of any evidence to the contrary, will refuse to believe that people choosing to live in tents in a park are not there somehow by choice or because they're lazy or whatever. And my understanding is that um, at the start of COVID, there was perhaps somewhat of a relaxation on on um, uh, or rules or, or simply things took care of themselves and people who might have previously gone to hostels or community shelters simply said, not on your life, mate, and, um, and uh, found other places to go. Um, and now the city and the police feel they have to clean up the mess and rather than than, than having a, an ounce of humanity in the process and, and asking if you know maybe there are better ways of dealing with 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 this problem than than forcible evictions have just done the traditional thing which is to simply throw people out without asking about the next step in the process of where are they supposed to go are the places where they're supposed to go safe um are they do they even exist um uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, um, certainly, you know, uh, Hamilton Council seems to play a role in this. They pl- play a role as as members of um, some of them as members of the Police Services Board, and they play a role of it in terms of this is city property that people are being evicted from. You know, when we th- we think back in in history to the the Great Depression. Um, I don't know. Uh, uh, enough about the history of Hamilton to say if people lived in parks during the Great Depression, but I know they did in places like New York, where famously, you know, Central yeah, Park had had thousands of people living in it. They had uh, Hooverville. Yeah. Look it up. And we don't we don't look back now and go, well, those idle buggers, they, you know, if they just worked a little bit harder, they wouldn't have had to live in those parks. No, we have huge sympathy for people living through one of the great calamities of the 20th century. This is one of the great calamities of the 21st century, uh, both both COVID and and the wider issue of poverty and you know chronic shortage of uh, affordable not just affordable housing but but subsidised and um, uh, low income housing. Uh, well, I mean that's the that's the the trick is the I, I mean on the on the weekend I, I caught one of this and I, I tweeted a, a bit of a Twitter thread slash rant. Uh, and my, my basic argument was was that you know this these people aren't there because of choice. There, there's a clear lack of social housing in Hamilton for people to take advantage of. And I'm not talking the 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 shelter system because that is woefully broken. It is and it's not meant to handle this situation. What's the real problem is, and where you get is there's a clear disconnect between leadership in Hamilton. And the grassroots, the people who are on the ground dealing with the shit every day. And what I meant, and I, what I mean by leadership, I don't mean just city council. I mean everything, police, uh, business, uh, all, all the upper echelons of Hamilton society are, there's a real disconnect there uh, between what's going on on the ground. And it's this, you know, the assumption, well, they're, they're there by choice. They need to go because they're dirty and they, they use drugs and they're, they're filthy and, and you know, they, they're breaking the law. Therefore, they have to go. 
it's a question of, well, where do they, where do they go? Cause they, it's not that you say, oh, go back to your homes. They have no homes. Uh, that the tent that you kicked out of the park was their home. So there's that. Secondly, um, if the city actually wants to remove these people from the streets, from the parks, from public places, they need to buy property, refurbish it, make it a f- subsidized housing that's affordable and safe and with dignity for, for people to families to, to live in and to recuperate and to get it on their feet and to start building up that social mobility again, the, this, the, the, the arguments of that I, I, I see on online against the encampments of, oh, they're lazy and, and they're, 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 they're drug users and they're dirty and it's crime ridden and all this. It's, uh, I, I look and say, so what, 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 you just have no compassion for these people. Like you, you, you don't care about trying to fix the problem. You just, if it, that's the case, then all you're going to do is you're going to have more tent cities popping up around the city. You're going to get sending the cops again to break it up. You're going to have more violent clashes. That's the case. It's a, it, it, yeah, they might be breaking the law, but that's the situation until city council steps in and realizes, well, we've got to do, we're the ones with the power. We've got to do this. We've got to, we got to find a way to do it. And I, on a, that subset, the, the people on the ground who are organizing, we've had them on this podcast. People like I like Hamilton, like Stop Sprawl, Hamont, um, No Hate in the Hammer. Uh, the the these are not separate inter in you know mobs of people. They're they're groups of people who are really all arguing for the same thing. They're all touching on the same issues, which is economic calamity for. Uh, the the Hamiltonians on the lower rungs of society. Um, they're, those people are often uh, racialized Canadians. Uh, they're, they're new Canadians or, 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 or marginalized Canadians or, or tra- trans or, or other um, minority groups who are often on those, those periphery and they're either hanging on by a thread or they're cast aside. And, these groups get the, the, the reason why they keep showing up is because they realize these, these issues are all interconnected. You know, the, the stop sprawl ham on people who were adamant against expanding the urban boundary because we had them on, they were talking, well, we need to build up social housing in Hamilton. There's all these places that we're not using. We're not re rezoning and redeveloping and encouraging developers redo this building or build a new, a, a project here for, uh, people to live in with dignity. Well, this is the result of that. You know, if you if you want to build a detached home, detached one million dollar home that these people can't afford anyways, where are they going to go? You know, the the market isn't going to fix this on its own. We you got to take action. You can't just say, oh, the market will provide housing. It's it's not. And if it does, it's not going to be affordable to these people. City hall, get in, get it, get in with your fists up and fight and make this happen. Yeah, we, we have. We, I, I don't like always comparing Canada to other countries in Europe because it's kind of a sucky thing for someone with a with a non Canadian accent to do. <laughs> However, sometimes I just have to. I don't Europe, know what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> Europe in the post war era built hundreds and millions of homes that are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that are or were publicly owned by municipal governments, local governments, by the state, whatever. 
to, to you know what it was called in britain after the war was home homes fit for heroes and that the uh, many of the people who fought in the second world war were not wealthy or they were from working class and and relatively uh poor backgrounds uh people who had never owned a home and never expected to own one you know the side the the, the fact that there's that there's less of a chronic shortage of of um affordable and subsidized housing in those countries is because the, the public sector provided for for many decades now i mean they've now stopped providing to a significant degree or things have been privatized or sold off or whatever but here we've never had a had a proper systemic uh, targeted large scale attempt to even provide uh, decent affordable housing to um everybody in society um so we we have you know really paltry amounts of housing for people who are the most vulnerable because of health or illness or, or whatever reasons um you know it, it's it's kind of impossible it's very difficult to get uh, we have a re- reducing numbers of you know right at the moment we're, we're all talking about affordable housing cooperative housing um associations being bought up by developers and knocked down for very expensive um seniors homes i mean i can think of one in burlington right now i, I don't blame the people who live in the cooperative at all for for doing what makes financial sense for them but the, the fact is cooperative uh, i can think of a number of uh, co-op housing schemes housing locations uh, that have been lost through that same route in the last decade. Um, and that, uh, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, cooperative housing offers a way to home ownership that is um, according to your means to to, to pay. I mean, it's really a, a, really a, a, a way of um, getting people into a, into a housing market that, that, that has a lot to recommend it. Well, that's, but that's the, that's the, the thing though, is that we're, I think I and I, I I've I said before I think COVID or this pandemic has really shone a magnifying glass on all these problems that were all were already there. These aren't new problems, but the pandemic forced a a huge magnifying glass on all this, and it just brought it all up to the surface. And all these problems are under such pressure, even prior to the pandemic and the and the the gold the good old years the the golden times when the money money was rolling. We realized, like all of a sudden, it was we we discovered it's all built on a house of cards, and all this stuff comes crashing down. We're now stuck dealing with it, and my frustration is, we're trying to use old twentieth century tactics to fix what's turning out to be a twenty first century problem. All right, I'm going to say twenty first century opportunity. I, I, I think I'd rather use that instead of a problem because I think there's an opportunity here to really build back an economy that is that's more that's better more more equal and more uh fair for people to to get to get around and a lot of that is providing safe affordable housing that that is dignified and not and something that people can be proud to live in and it's clear in hamilton from this weekend that need is not going away anytime soon and if they, i think the message I'll, I'll leave it at this because I want to get on to the next uh, topic. If you're a city councilor or somebody of influence in Hamilton and you saw what happened on this weekend and your first reaction is the police didn't hit hard enough. 
Um, you, you're going to be on the wrong side of, of history, my friend. You know, I'm hoping if you're a city councilor or somebody who has power in the city, you looked at it and you said, we need to change this. This, this is just going to keep happening. We're not this, the, what happened is not a solution. It's not a warning. It's not a detriment. It's going to keep coming back and it's going to keep coming back harder and more violent and more. And I'm, I'm worried it, it escalates into a deadly confrontation for either police or for, for, for citizens. And I don't want to see that ever happen at all, but I, I'm worried that ignoring it or just doing the same old tired story of, oh, they're, they're, they're lazy bums and drug addicts and criminals and they get what they deserve. No, it's, it, we need to change it and we need to change it now. Well, I think that leads perfectly into our next subject actually, which is uh, the subject, I think, uh, in a lot of ways of of the level of political courage that leaders, uh, provincial leaders, and perhaps our municipal leaders will show in the next year as we run up to really important uh, elections. So let's take a short break and then uh, start talking about that when we get back. Welcome back. And uh, so for our second story today, um, we noticed that there were two announcements from the leaders of the... Um, well of two of the opposition parties i shouldn't say the main ones because perhaps only one of them can really claim to be main right at this second by technical definitions yes (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but there were two two significant announcements from the leader of the ndp andrea horvath and from stephen del duca the leader of the ontario liberals to summarize i mean andrea horvath announced that um the ndp would be making a commitment to bring in a $20 minimum wage if they're elected into government next year, which is, you know, $5 more than the the 15 that the um, PCs recently introduced. And Stephen Del Duca made an announcement that if elected, they would abolish the ministerial zoning orders, the MZOs, that have um, existed for a long time but which um have been used in an entirely new way and unintended way um by the uh pc government since 2018 so uh well joe what do you what do you make of those two announcements meh um (laughs) i i i I, the the minimum wage idea i I like um but it's kind of like and and part of my my pun it's kind of like a day late and a buck short um, it, you know, like, I, I'm not, I'm not surprised that the NDP want to raise the minimum wage to $20. They should, it, I, I applaud them for putting on their, on their platform saying that they will do it. Uh, that's great. I don't think the liberals are not going to do that either. Um, the conservatives will, we know the conservatives will not, um, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a, a shaking earth shattering policy announcement. Uh, the MZO announcement is, I think a little bit more, it's a little bit more earth shattering, but I don't think anyone's going to care about it. Uh, cause I think the, the MZO one is one that is going to have a lot, you know, if you're a policy wonk, it's going to have a huge impact in terms of the inner workings of government and the, the powers that government can use to, to drive development in this province. And that, you know, over the long term, that has far more, I think a, a bigger ramification, uh, for government. But again, it's, really something that only policy wonks and will really care about. And it's a, it, I think it, it landed with a thud or a dud, I should say, uh, in the news cycle. I, in term, I would say this in terms of the, the $20 minimum wage, um, Stephen Del Duca has promised 
that he would bring back the basic income pilot program uh, and that they would also raise the minimum wage. So, I mean, th- this is not a I, – I, coming off our, our previous story, this is very un – I find it very unsatisfactory. And it's very old school politics. Uh, you know, it, it's it's just let's let's throw some money. Let's let's try and get it some tinker tinker around the edges, but let's not actually address the core issues of the problems that are affecting the 905 and Ontario at large. Um, it's I, I'm going to go on a rant here, so bear with me, folks. But uh, <laughs> again, it's my podcast. Uh, I can do what I want. I I I looked at like the last federal election pissed me off because we're coming out of a pandemic. A global pandemic where all, all the faults of society were just shown bare. You know the the, the economic inequality, the 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 wage inequality, the job insecurity that exists, the the dissatisfaction with the way things are by a good number of people was just laid bare for a lot of people. Um, the fact that you know these frontline workers and the minimum wage workers that we turn it oh they're so we're so dependent on them to run the economy we we're back to trying to find ways we're trying to find ways to treat them like dirt and it's like come oh, come on we're going to go back to this old tired argument you know when you know I thought the liberals when they called the the federal liberals when they called the last election, they're going to come out with some big program, you know, like a, a, they were going to bring in a, a basic income guarantee or something like that. Something really big that like, you know, you know, they said, we need the public buy-in on this is too big just to go because we think it, we need a, we need a mandate from the people to push it forward. And I said, okay, that would have been responsible, a responsible government thing to do. But instead it was clearly just a power grab by uh, Justin Trudeau and the, and the liberals. Um, it paid off for them. We got back to the status quo. We're moving for, for, uh, forward with that. I'm pissed off because I see provincially there's an opportunity for real to change the dialogue on this and to really perform. Like with the fact, the reality is times have changed with the pandemic, and we are still trying to uh, we're tr- we're still trying to solve the problems from 1995. It seems. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not saying, okay, how do we address things like r- really address the, the housing crisis in the, in this province, the, the socialized housing, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, we're, we're, we're going to give minimum wage. Great. Sure. But it, you know, it, we're not, we're not going to the, to really addressing the core bits of inequality. Uh, that were here, you know, and I want to, I want to see that from Andrew Horvath or Stephen Del Duca say, we need to do things differently. Times have changed. Well, yeah. I mean, my, my feeling is that we're not going to get it from either of those two leaders, but I could, I, I would love to be proved wrong by one of them. Um, my, my feeling is, uh, that, well, it's not even a feeling. I know for a fact that the reason Stephen Del Duca is leader of the Ontario Liberals is because, Many members of the OLP felt that Kathleen Wynne was was too left wing and frightened off voters, and and therefore a move to the right, uh, you know, um, is the right thing to do. My personal feeling is that's absolutely a misjudgment of what the last election was about, and absolutely a misjudgment of of the public appetite for the policies that the Wynne government was implementing. Um, I think there was fatigue at the Liberals, and there was a, a huge dose of 
just toxic nastiness directed at, at Kathleen Wynne personally because she was a woman and because she was a lesbian and all those other things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think I'm making that up, I saw it with my own eyes on the doorsteps, uh, things that were said, the, the you know, uh, mm-hmm. day in, day out to, to volunteers that I've never seen in an election before. So Del Duca was a move to her right. Uh, I, I don't see him being the kind of guy who's who's going to set the world alight with with radical policies. I don't think that's really his style or the style that he was chosen leader to to put on the table. No. Andrea Horvath, she's such an interesting person in some ways. I mean, she's <laughs> she's survived maybe two elections now by the skin of her teeth. I mean, I mean she survived the first one where she took the NDP so far to the right that they ended up on the right of the Liberals. And completely, you know, there was the election where the Liberals went left and the NDP went right and the Liberals won the majority. Um, she won last, last time last basically of, because the, the Liberals collapsed. I mean, the NDP did well, so that brought I mean, that, another that election. That was interesting. Like, the Liberals lit- literally gave up. And the, the week before the election, the election date, Kathleen went and said, okay, I give up. We're not going to win. That's it. And... What gets me is the NDP coming out and saying, oh, my God, Kathleen Wynne ruined the election for us. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Your, your major opponent, the governing party, basically says, I quit. I give up. I'm handing in the towel, you know, in the last leg of the race. And you're saying, oh, it's her fault you couldn't carry it past the finish line? I'm well, sorry. You, you still couldn't. You still couldn't even. You still couldn't even hold the the PCs to a to a minority. Yeah, you know, like the, that. You, I'm like, I'm sorry, liberals, Andrea, we're going home. Well, that, that's we're going thing. home. I mean, we're going to take our eight you seats. You, and, can, you cannot convince anyone else to sign up, and that's that's what I get is the NDP coming out. Oh, you know, we're they, she'd sabotage the first. Like, no, you, own it, own it. You fucking suck. You dropped the ball. You you choked. You know, like I'm gonna get letters, Joel. (laughs) Good, and I hope I will write back personally with what I think. Because as if you're if you're the NDP, face facts. Last election, you fucking choked big time. Mark my words. And what I'm pissed off at is they didn't learn. They're clearly not learning the lesson. They're not going big and making and coming and saying, "Let's change the script." Doug Ford is a, I'm, I'm thinking Doug Ford has shot himself in the foot so many times this last year with COVID. Um, the, the, he, he was, everything he's handed, they've, they've mucked it up. I, I can't think of a single un, unabashed win that the conservatives have had in their entire, even before COVID, in their entire term as government. They have not had a single win that they can unequivocally say, yeah. That that's a win. They they won over the public. They got a good they got a a good policy through. They just they they're the Charlie Brown of political parties. They fucked it up. They just fucked it up. And I'm like, but then I look at the NDP and the Liberals, and I'm like, where people are are itching for change. They 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 people know, people know things have changed. We are not going back to a before COVID. Era the 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 idea like oh the free market's going to fix the free market came in to uh, put dish uh, soap on the on the supermarket shelves right now, and so don't give me this oh the free market's going to solve the solve all of our problems. Government needs to step in and use its vast powers to start solving these issues, and those issues being housing affordability and 
ensuring that the lowest rung of the society, the, the people that we, it turns out we are also dependent on to make this thing run, this thing that we call society, that they're, look at, that they're looked after. And we need to start investing back into people big time. We need, we need to start investing yeah. properly into back into healthcare. Getting getting nurses in and and workers into long term care homes and making sure that they are places that for dignity because there's a lot of us heading for those homes uh, in the next few years. Getting our hospitals uh, spotless and and best in the world and stop trying to find ways to ha- to hack and slash that budget. Stop picking fights with teachers and getting our education system working so that we have people who are going to solve the future problems and not just be let's just put people uh, who can put bolts in, in the spoke of the wheel on the assembly line. We need people who are going to start thinking of new, b- better solutions to the problems that we're going to face. We need to start investing in people. And I'm not seeing a lot of that from any political party right now uh, at, at Queens Park. And time's running out I mean, for them to start winning people over. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, I think you're right. Investment in people, definitely. However, I also think it's the right time to start changing the ways we think about making those investments. I mean, writing a check and throwing them at entity X or Y that has existed for 100 years or 50 years or whatever. It's like, no, let's not just talk about um, the minimum wage. Let's talk about what it takes to create a living wage. Mm-hmm. And the minimum wage, anybody who knows anything significant about um, you know, <laughs> the, uh, minimum wages knows that it's basically a very blunt instrument. Um, it is, uh, it, it's not the, you know, it's not a tool necessarily for fixing the entire poverty problem. Why can't we talk about fixing the entire poverty thing? Why do we accept that this exists? We shouldn't accept that it is normal for a percentage of society to live on the streets or to live in poverty. Um, And I think my feeling is, my gut feeling is that we are in an age where people are willing to take um, really bold policies. The thing is that they're willing to take those bold policies either on the left or on the right. so, you know, why why are we seeing people like Rob Ford, Doug Ford, Donald Trump, um, or any number of the other kind of right-wing demagogues uh, prospering? Because I think people are sick with the kind of moderate, going-nowhere form of politics that uh, through my life was typified before I came to Canada by Tony Blair, that kind of centrism, what he called the third way between the left and the right, which basically meant, you know, Toryism with with a with a with a nice face with a nicer face stuck on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's the mood of the of the country now. There are people who hate everything about everything, uh, who who just believe in some kind of libertarian whatever. Right. Um, but they're a fairly small percentage, although they seem to get far more attention than 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 their numbers warrant. On the other side, I think people are much more willing to talk about um, basic incomes, um, a, a fundamental New Deal with First Nations, um, uh, how, you know, uh, maybe the public sector, uh, the municipalities, whatever, uh, getting into building large-scale housing uh, projects uh, to just deal root and branch with the the affordability here's, here's the crisis. Thing. I don't I don't even think. 
we, we've talked numerous times about the, the housing affordability crisis uh, on this podcast. Um, and I invite any of our listeners to go take a deep dive into our back catalog. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't heard some of those episodes, check out the episodes with like Mike Moffat uh, and Alyssa Briarly to, uh, to start. Um, we, we need to, I don't think we need to invest a ton of money necessarily either. Like we're not talking like a Marshall plan level of investment. I, I would argue we already have the tools change the, the bylaws so that a company comes in and says they want to build a condo tower or a new development or whatever. Um, make it so that 10% of the units sold in that project or the nearest de- denomination to that 10 percentage um, is, uh, is given over to a, uh, a, a public housing corporation. We have, you know, in the province of Ontario, there's all these, uh, regional or municipal housing corporations, at least there should be, uh, if there's not, then I would urge the, I would tell, I would, as the province, I would use my powers to say, make one and, or get it organized and just have it. Yeah. 10% of every new housing project, every bit that you're that no matter what, no matter the size whether it's a, na- a, a single detached home neighborhood or if it's a condo tower or if it's a townhouse complex, whatever the case may be, 10% of the units built has to be given over to the, the, the public housing corporation. And I know this is radical for some because it's, oh, you're giving free housing to, to people. I'm like, kind of, yeah. We're, we're, I think we're at that point now where... Well, in theory, that those kind of deals are already done. It's that they're, they're not really done. Um, no, they're, they're, the, they're, they're, know, they're, they're the community benefits is the phrase that many people will have but heard it's, of. It's but, negotiated. It's it's, it's you know, they, they, again, it's come into well, let, let's. It's been muddied down so that it kind of turns into a back room deal between the developer and the city, and it's it becomes part of the negotiation package. Whereas if it's well, community benefits, guess what? Community benefits also get messed up, as yeah. uh, Lisa Kearns was saying last week. They get messed up by by things being appealed to LPAT. So community benefits are meant to be part of any major development. Um, mm-hmm. And the phrase, you know, the hint, the clues in the question, or the answers in the you know, community benefits, benefits for the community. That mm-hmm. can be anything. What it often is is a sum of money for the community. It goes straight to the city, <laughs> into the city coffers. Um, you know, now, there are things, you know, sometimes it will be electric vehicle charging stations. Sometimes it will be bike stands. You know, it will be, mm-hmm. sometimes it will be a green roof. These are the kind of things that get, get tacked on. They tend not to be that earth shattering when you're talking about the, the sheer scale of, of what is being built and the money that the but developer see, will make. But see, that's where, that's where I don't think you need these community benefits. Cause it's, again, it's meant to, we're getting, we're getting down, we're going down the road of development again. And I don't, I don't really want to, but this is one, again, one of the examples of if the political leadership, the, the opposition parties, they really want to change the narrative and say, we're going to change the way to do things. This is a perfect example of you don't have to, put out money but you are going to piss off a lot of developers on this and they're going to they're going to cry cry havoc and and that oh my god you're going to cripple all of us and i'm kind of bullshit on it right now the if you said no there's no community benefits that's that's taken off the table because if the provincial government says no we're just going to legislate we're going to build 
more charging stations. You can just say, no, you, these, the charging stations aren't, aren't perks and, and benefits anymore. They're now a necessity. Same as you say you want to build whatever you build 10% or find, find a, a compliment. 5% might be a more reasonable number, whatever the case may be. There are people who, who would know the details far better than I, but if you say something like a, if a percentage of every unit of the total units in a project built have to go to uh, uh, public housing, you say, no, you're going to build, you know, when you build, build new gas stations, say, no, they are going to be charging stations. Now We're, that's, that's we take, we just say, this is how we are going to build the province. And it get you know, it, it, it's an easy way to say, oh, yeah, we, we can provide the housing for people to, to move in. And we don't, ha- we don't get these ghettos. You don't get these, these neighborhoods that are, that, you know, businesses don't want to move into shops. You know, it's, it's hard to get loans to open up a business in them. It's because they're already in where everybody else lives. And it, like this, it, this, 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 yeah. yeah, I mean, this, it's a great idea. And it, I mean, it, it, it happens around the world. It happens, I believe, in, in some places in Canada. There's, there's already something called um, inclusionary zoning. Um, the trick is, is, is making affordable units affordable in perpetuity and not just affordable for the first couple of weeks before someone flips right. them. Um, so, it, yeah, it should, for, to my mind, it should be a rental accommodation and not um, for purchase. Um, I'll tell you the, the experience in London is that the developers started by building separate staircases for the people living in the cheap ha- in the cheap units so that they wouldn't mix with the rich people who are paying for the fancy units, which just makes my skin crawl. But, I mean, you just have to hope that the world won't tolerate things like that. Um, however, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um, there's been examples again around the world of, of the yeah the importance of not building, not putting all one sector of society in one place has all kinds of benefits for a community. Uh, mixing your professionals with your uh, more blue collar workers with your you know uh, with your office workers um, uh, has all kinds of benefits. You know this idea that 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 everybody lives in their own street and never mixes with the people from elsewhere is, is all kinds of messed up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there are huge benefits with, with that kind of approach. And getting back to Horvath and Del Duca, I mean, I just don't see that kind of from either of them. And I hope I'm pro- again, I hope I'm proved wrong, but I don't hey, see you know it. what they could do. The invitation is out there. If they're out, if they want to come on this podcast and show us the, the bold, what bold vision of Ontario they have, the invitation is out there. I, I love to have them come on and and, to, and tell it straight to our faces like this is what it, prove us wrong that there's a that what they think is needed. Um, because right now it just looks like they're they're nitpicking at Doug Ford's leftovers, and it's it's sad and pathetic. I want I want to see boldness. Well, it, it's it's business as usual, certainly. I mean, and I know why politicians often think they have to play safe but you know one of those two leaders has to kind of reduce the other one to even more rubble than one of them is already in mm-hmm. um if if they want to become premier of this province um you know 
unfortunately that's the electoral system we have i think it's all kinds of wrong but there we go that's the one this election is going to be fought under um they need to do something that that makes a, a big impact and 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 yeah uh, i'm not being very inspired so far um but we shall see well anyway i think we're, we're up on our yeah. limit by the look of it so um we should probably wrap it up for this week and uh um if you have different opinions or if you have um uh questions or thoughts about what we've discussed today um particularly with perhaps the the run-up to next year's provincial election and, and what the uh what the uh, opposition parties should be um should be recommending what should, what they should be putting in their platforms please do get in touch we, we'd love to hear from you and we could uh, feature that on a future episode uh, until then thanks very much for listening and we'll speak to you next time that's it for this episode of the 905er thank you for listening as always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. Did Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.